Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa salatu wa salam ala ashraf al-anbiya'i wal-mursaleen wa ala alihi wa ashabihi ajma'in. Good afternoon to everybody. Welcome back to our Dhu'l-Hijjah series where we are covering the the slander of Aisha radiallahu ta'ala anha. So we're going to just kind of pick up where we left off, bi'idhnillahi ta'ala. We left off on lesson number 27, and that was being mindful. Um, oh, sorry, lesson number 28. And that was one of the best ways to reduce the pain of someone uh, is to let them know that they are not alone in their experience. To let them know that what they are experiencing experiencing they are not alone in that and this was based upon the statement of Aisha's mother Umm Ruman when Aisha went to her about when she finally found out what was being said about her and she went to her mother <clears throat> and her mother said to her that there's no woman who is, you know, uh, beloved to her husband, you know, and that husband has, you know, other wives, meaning that she is not the only wife that is in the relationship with him, except that those women are going to find some of her faults and some of her mistakes, you know, out of jealousy. She's trying to normalize what Aisha is experiencing so that she doesn't exacerbate it. She doesn't make it look like it's more than what it is. Oftentimes when we, you know, are going through something in our lives, we tend to, you know, we tend to exacerbate it. We tend to exaggerate it, thinking that we are the only ones that have ever gone through this, that no one, you know, has had a similar experience. And, you know, our minds tell us that our situation is sometimes more than what it is. And then Aisha's mother is explaining to her that, you know, what she is experiencing is, has something to do with some, some type of jealousy coming from, whether it was coming from the wives or other wives of the Prophet ﷺ, which we know it wasn't, but then also one of the people who got caught up in the slander of Aisha was Hamna bintu Jahsh, who was the sister of Zainab bintu Jahsh. So it is quite possible that, you know, Zainab, you know, uh, Zainab's sister, you know, Hamna kind of got involved in the spreading of the slander as a result of Aisha being, you know, the co-wife to her sister. And so Aisha, she says, subhanAllah, she said, subhanAllah, glory be to Allah. Are people actually saying this about me? Are people actually saying that I slept with Safwan ibn Mu'awqil? Are people actually saying that about me? And Aisha's mother said, yes. She said, She said, does the Prophet know about this? And Aisha's mother said, yes, he does, he knows. And she said, Does my father know about this? Does Abu Bakr know about this? And Aisha's mother said, unfortunately, yes. And Aisha just, she loses it at that point. As I said before, the two most important men in her life are now aware of a slander that has been spread about her, you know, of 
sleeping with someone, you know? And so Aisha's not just hurt because people are saying it about her, but her husband knew about it and so did her father and no one said anything to her. And of course, Aisha, she says to her mother, you know, Ya Ummi, Ghafarallahu Laki, Nas Bihada, Wala She said that, you know, may Allah forgive you, oh my mother. Oh my mother, may Allah forgive you. You know, like, are you, you know, are like people are saying this about me and you knew and you didn't say anything to me about it? And Aisha said, for Bakitu, Tilkil Layla. Aisha said that, you know, I just cried the entire night. I cried literally the entire night until the morning, until, you know, the tears were incessant. They would not stop. I couldn't even sleep. Because I cried so hard. You ever cried so hard because of something, you know, some type of lie or some type of slander that is being spread about you that's not true? And there's not really anything that you can do about it. This is, this is the thing when you are being slandered. This is the thing when you are being talked about. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing that you can do about it. Sometimes you got to just sit there. You sit there in that discomfort because no matter how many people you go to to try to tell, hey, this is not true. And the thing about it is that your friends don't need an explanation and your enemies will never believe you anyway. So it's just like, and Aisha gets to that point as we're going to get to. Aisha gets to that point. You know, when lies are being spread about you, people who are really your friends, they don't need an explanation. You understand? Because they already know you. Your friends don't need an explanation and your enemies will never believe you anyway. So it's just like, in that moment, it's like, there's nothing that you can do. You know, people who are really my friends, I don't have to explain to them that I'm not guilty of this. You understand? Your friends don't need an explanation. They don't believe it anyway. (laughs) And your enemies will never believe you. No matter how many excuses you put forth, your enemies are never going to believe you. Actually, they are enjoying the show. <laughs> your enemies are enjoying the show. Make no mistake about that. Aisha said, that Aisha fell unconscious. That's how hurt she was. All right? And, you know, Abu Bakr in another narration, he heard Aisha crying. And uh, he calls out to Umruman, he calls out to Aisha's mother and asks Aisha's mother, what is Aisha crying about? And Aisha's mother says, Right? Like, she now knows what is actually being said about her. And Abu Bakr, he just start crying. He just start weeping, you know. And it shows the pain that Abu Bakr felt watching his daughter go through this as he tried, along with her mother, tried to keep this information away from her. As we do as parents, we try to keep things away from our children for as long as we possibly can. All right. For as long as we possibly can. But then fate kind of, 
you know, overtakes the situation and, you know, that information, they become privy to it. And there's really nothing that we can do at that point to kind of cushion the blow. You know, the blow, it is what it is. We, we try to keep you away from that information, try to keep that information away from you as long as we could. We could no longer contain it. And now you just, you have to deal with it, you know? Um, so continue on from this point. Um, so Aisha, continuing on, Aisha said, um, فدعا رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم علي بن ابي طالب واسامه بن بن زيد رضي الله تعالى عنهما حين استلبث الوحي حين استلبث استلبث الوحي يستأمرهما في فراق اهله then the prophet صلى الله عليه وسلم calls علي بن ابي طالب and اسامه بن زيد the Prophet وسلم, he calls Ali ibn Abi Talib and Usama ibn Zayd. And he calls them now because he wants to uh, he wants to seek consultation with them as it relates to what he should do with Aisha. The Prophet وسلم, is obviously hurt. Revelation has slowed down, meaning revelation has stopped. And the Prophet وسلم, really does not know what to do. He knows that Aisha is not guilty of what they are accusing her of, but he is still a man. He's still a man who has to deal with, you know, the scrutiny of his community, he has to deal with, you know, all eyes is on him and his family and the embarrassment and the frustration, the anger and everything that is associated with that. The Prophet وسلم, Aisha said, my tears never stopped, nor did I sleep, and morning broke while I was still weeping. Allah's Messenger وسلم, called Ali ibn Abi Talib and Usama ibn Zayd when he saw that divine revelation stopped. It stopped. And he called them in order to consult them as to the idea of divorcing Aisha. So, understand something. Here is the Prophet وسلم, I, I want our men to listen closely. I want the brothers who are listening, you know, I want the brothers who are listening to listen closely. The Prophet ﷺ, he called Ali ibn Abi Talib and Usama ibn Zayd to consult with them as it relates to divorcing Aisha. Here is the Prophet ﷺ who is kind of considering divorcing Aisha uh, and in considering the divorce of Aisha he calls someone, he calls two of his companions, two of his close companions for consultation. And that shows us that divorce is, you know, to a man who loves his family, divorce is not an easy task. Separation is not an easy decision to make. And even when you want to consult someone about something so serious as divorce, you have to make sure that the person that you are consulting about divorce is someone that, number one, is going to keep the family affairs private, which is why the Prophet ﷺ called Ali and Usama. Who were Ali and Usama? Why didn't the Prophet ﷺ just go to Abu Bakr? He couldn't go to Abu Bakr because that would be a conflict of interest. 
That's his daughter. You're not going to go to a man. You're not going to go to a father and say, hey, I'm thinking about divorcing your daughter. You understand? That's not going to work. It's a conflict of interest for a man to go to his father-in-law about what he should do with his daughter. That's not who you go to for advice. Obviously, the father is going to be biased towards his daughter and is going to tell you to be patient. So you're not going to get the real information, not to mention it's kind of embarrassing. Like, why would I go talk to my father-in-law about divorcing, you know, his daughter? So the Prophet ﷺ didn't go to Abu Bakr. Obviously, he's not going to go to Umar because that's a conflict of interest because he's also married to Umar's daughter. He's not going to go to Uthman because Uthman is married to his daughter. You understand? So why go to Ali? Why go to Ali and Usama ibn Zayd? Ali was the Prophet Sallallahu cousin. Ali was the cousin of the Prophet Sallallahu Their fathers were brothers. Their fathers were brothers. All right? So the Prophet Sallallahu was also raised with Ali. The Prophet Sallallahu was raised with Ali. If you remember, when the Prophet Sallallahu grandfather, Abdul Muttalib, died when he was 12, who did he go live with? He went to go live with Abu Talib, which meant that Ali, Ja'far, Aqil, all of Ali's brothers became like brothers to the Prophet So although they were cousins, they were actually raised together like cousins. You know, so cousins are brothers. We already know that. For many of us, we grew up with our cousins. Cousins came to live with us for different reasons. What, whatever was going on in their homes, family members were, you know, passed or were deceased. Family members were not in situations to be able to take care of different situations, different circumstances. But those of us who were raised with our cousins, cousins became like brothers. Female cousins, male cousins, they became like our, you know, relatives. They became like brothers and sisters. So Ali was not just. The, the first cousin of the Prophet Sallallahu that was also like his brother, all right, because he was raised with him. But then when Abu Talib, you know, got to a point in his life when he wasn't able to take care of his own children because of his old age, uh, Abbas, the Prophet Sallallahu uncle, Abu Talib's brother, and the Prophet Sallallahu decide to split the kids up. And so uh, Abbas... He took Ja'far and took Akil and some of the other brothers and he raised them. And the Prophet ﷺ took Ali bin Abi Talib and raised him. So they kind of split the kids up because Abu Talib was an older man and he wasn't able to care for the kids anymore. So they got older, they began to split the kids up and raise them there as their own. So not only was Ali the cousin of the Prophet ﷺ, not only was he like a brother because he was raised with him, but he was also like a father figure because the Prophet ﷺ raised Ali when Abu Talib could no longer care for him. You follow me? In addition to that, the Prophet ﷺ marries Ali to his daughter, so that now becomes his son-in-law. So there was no one who was closer to the Prophet ﷺ or had a closer relationship with the Prophet ﷺ, then Ali bin Abi Talib. You understand? They were like brothers. They were biological cousins. They were also like brothers. They were also like father and son. And they were also father-in-law and son-in-law. 
So there was nobody who was closer to the Prophet wasallam. He knew Ali didn't like Aisha. I, I don't know where you got that from, Brother Umar. Please don't throw that out there in the atmosphere. <laughs> Please don't throw that out there in the atmosphere because that is actually the belief of the Shiite. Don't, don't throw that out there in the atmosphere. Please do your research. I don't know what English books you guys are relying on. I don't know what information, but when you're reading about Ali and you're reading about Aisha, you have to be careful with what you read in English because Shiite material, they, they use this type of situation as I'm actually going to get into. They use this story to feed their narrative of the Prophet وسلم, really not deserving of being the Prophet and that Ali should have been the Prophet and that Aisha was, you know, uh, you know, actually an adulteress. You have to be mindful where you're taking your information from. Please do not throw any false information out there about Ali having an issue or really did not like Aisha. Please do not ever throw any information out there like that. There's nothing from the Quran and the Sunnah that would support or substantiate that bogus belief. With all due respect, brother, please, I'm, uh, if you put something else out there like that, I will block you, period. Understand the Shiite, they have infiltrated this story in times past and have utilized this story to feed their narrative. Understand where a lot of false information comes from. But to say that, you know, to say that uh, Ali disliked Aisha, la wallahi. wallahi, they had nothing but the utmost respect for one another. They had nothing but the utmost respect for one another. Even in their disagreements, it was still based upon love and respect for one another. But don't ever put that out there that, you know, he disliked her. If you give me a chance and you let me explain, I'll explain why he told the Prophet ﷺ to divorce Aisha. And it wasn't because he disliked her. It was not, it had nothing to do with him disliking her. Perhaps you were reading on some website or reading from some books and you did not understand the origin of the material that you were reading. You understand, this is why it's, un this, this is why it's important to have a strong foundation with the Quran and the Sunnah. So that when you read stuff like that, you automatically know that Shiite mysterious, Shiite material. No, that has nothing to do with him. Just no, not, not no, I, I get it. I understand that you, you put it out there like that because that's probably what you understood. But we're here to learn. That's not to say that I know everything because I don't. But what I'm talking about right here, I can guarantee you I know what I'm talking about. You understand? What I'm talking about right here, I absolutely know what I'm talking about. Especially as it relates to the Aqidah part. Especially as it relates to the Shiite and how they have infiltrated the information of Ahl-Sunnah and put that information out there in hopes that people, much like yourself, who don't really have any background knowledge, don't really, are not really grounded in the Aqidah of Ahl-Sunnah to understand when you see their information rear its ugly head. La Wallahi had nothing to do with him disliking Aisha. 
but pay attention. But divorce is it's not a it's not an easy task. Divorce is let me teach you, brother brother Umar. Let me teach you. Just give me a second and let me make it make sense for you. Okay, let me teach you. The Prophet sallallahu called Ali. So I'm 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 trying to show you why he chose these two individuals, right? Why he chose Ali ibn Abi Talib and why he chose Usama ibn Zayd. All right. So Ali ibn Abi Talib, there was no individual, no human being amongst the Prophet sallallahu companions that were closer, that was closer to the Prophet sallallahu than Ali. So that was that meant that. There was no one who knew the, the inside of his household, who knew the intricacies of his home and his family better than Ali ibn Abi Talib, as well as Usama ibn Zayd. Usama ibn Zayd was the son of Zayd ibn Haritha, who was initially called the Zayd, the son of Muhammad. Zayd used to be called Zayd ibn Muhammad. Before Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the ayah saying that, you know, the only people that can be your sons are the people that you gave birth to. You understand? And Usama, uh, Usama's mother, who was Zayd's wife, was uh, uh, Um Ayman. Um Ayman was also a woman from African, you know, African descent. Uh, She's also from Ethiopia. And she also used to breastfeed the Prophet Sallallahu The Prophet Sallallahu used to refer to Um Ayman as Ummi, or my mother. So Zayd ibn Haritha and Um Ayman were the mother and father of Usama ibn Zayd. Usama ibn Zayd was given the nickname Rasulullah wasallam, the most beloved, the most dear of the youth to the Prophet wasallam, And he was also raised in the household of the Prophet wasallam. So now the question would be, why would the Prophet wasallam go to Usama ibn Zayd instead of going to Zayd ibn Haritha or even Um Ayman, why did the Prophet ﷺ choose these two young men? Ali ibn Abi Talib during this time was in his early 20s. Usama ibn Zayd and Aisha were actually the same age. Usama ibn Zayd and Aisha were actually the same age, 15 years old. Ali ibn Abi Talib was around 21, 22 years old at that time. Why would the Prophet ﷺ go and consult with someone who was 21, 22 years old and a 15-year-old? He wanted, number one, those who knew his household best. Number two, people who would keep his family business a secret. And number three, you're right, Zing, they were young, but why? Why would he choose these two young men? They were her peers, but there's another reason. Yes, why would he choose these two young boys to go to for advice? So wise of the Prophet Wasallam. I want to see who can get this. Because you guys are dancing around this like you're right there. Because they were spiritually mature? Yes, but that's not the reason why. Good try, Asiya. Why would he go to Usama ibn Zayd? Because he wanted to empower them? No. No No tainted in thoughts? What do you mean? Seems like you're close. Why? Because they were tainted. Because they were not tainted by life experiences. 
because they will tell the truth exactly why why would young people tell the truth why why would these young people tell the truth fresh minds right al hafiz ibn hajar he said that the prophet sallallahu chose usama ibn zaid rather than his mother and his father just like he chose Ali ibn Abi Talib Hafid ibn Hajar, he said that the reason why the Prophet ﷺ chose Usama ibn Zayd and Ali ibn Abi Talib was because of the pureness and the innocence of their intellect. They're innocent. They are innocent. Young people are innocent. And the reason why is because لِأَنَّهُ أَكْثَرَ جُرْعَ عَلَى الجواب. And that is because young people are more audacious when they are asked a question rather than someone who was older and more mature. An older, more mature person is going to sit and think about consequences, think about, and they might hide certain things because they're considering the person that's asking the question. They're also considering the person that the answer is going to impact. So an older person has too much experience to respond in a genuine manner without any biases. Whereas young people, they're just going to give the answer. <laughs> they're innocent, they're young, and they're, you know, mutajarri'un. You know, they're going to give it to you straight, right? Whereas a person that's a little older than that, they're going to consider all of the, you understand? <laughs> you understand? So an older person is going to consider all of the other, you know, all of the other uh, angles. But right, the younger people, they don't understand the politics, right? They don't understand, you know, diplomacy. They don't have diplomacy. And so it was so wise of the Prophet ﷺ to choose them. And so that brings us uh, to lesson number 29. Lesson number 29, and that is, before resorting to divorce, it is important that men have advisors, people that they can consult rather than consulting shaitan, who will always encourage separation. Think about how many men who have pronounced divorce on their wives and have never consulted anybody other than their desires and shaitan. If shaitan and your desires, your whims and your desires are your advisors, you in big trouble. If shaitan and your desires are your consultants in major matters of your life, then you are doomed to, to, doomed to destruction. The Prophet ﷺ, here is the messenger of Allah, a man وسلم, who receives revelation from the heavens, yet you still find him consulting with people, even those who are younger than him, as it relates to what, she, what he should do with his wife. And I, I don't mean, you know, I, I don't know if men think that there's some type of 
you know, this kind of validates some type of male bravado. I don't need anybody's advice. And this is how I feel. And this is what I want to do. But don't you have somebody that can talk you off the ledge? You don't have somebody that you can say, hey, let me run something by you before I make a mistake. Nothing. You just go. I'm, I'm, I'm going to put you in it. I'm going to divorce you. And that's it. We're done and we're over. And you'll cancel an entire family without consulting with anybody. You don't have to consult with anybody. Did not the Prophet them consult with other men before he made a decision to divorce his wife? And it's not just it's not just having advisors. It's having people that have wisdom, people that are going to give you the advice that you need in that moment. The Prophet was like, revelation stopped, right? And right now in our time, revelation has stopped. <laughs> so if revelation, when revelation stops, we find wise men that we can consult with. That's exactly what the Prophet ﷺ did in this particular instance. Revelation stopped, and so therefore he couldn't consult with Allah, so therefore he consulted with the wise people in his cabinet, in his circle. You understand? Not to mention that Ali bin Abi Talib was also one of his Ahlul Mashura. Ali bin Abi Talib was also one of his consultants as it relates to the movement of the community. You got to have somebody that you can bounce information off of before you go make a major decision. Shaykh Khan and your desires cannot be the only ones that you consult. They cannot be. And it's almost like we intentionally don't go and consult with anybody. But then we want to consult with people when we, you know, uh, was my marriage, was my divorce done right? Or did I do this right? And it's like, damn, man, why didn't you come talk to somebody before you did it? Now you got this whole mess that you want this poor student of knowledge to you know, intervene in and to jump in the middle of to try to clean up a mess that you made that you could have avoided if you had simply talked to somebody beforehand. SubhanAllah, be. Shaitan understands the power of the union between man and woman, and this is why he seeks to destroy that union every single time. So if you consult with your desires and you consult with Shaitan, those are your consultants, you in big trouble every single time. I promise you. So Usama ibn Zayd, what does he say? Let's listen to the advice of these two young men. And this shows you that in communities where men make mature decisions, the young men usually follow suit. In communities where young men see the elder men in the community making sound, mature, healthy decisions, the young men usually follow suit, as we're going to see. That Ali ibn Abi Talib and Usama ibn Uzay, look at the advice that they're going to give to the Prophet and it, it is, is a reflection of the environment that they live in. It's a reflection of the men in the environment that they are surrounded by. You understand? And so the Prophet ﷺ called Ali ibn Abi Talib, Usama ibn Uzayt, when he saw divine revelation delayed in order to consult them about the idea of, marrying, uh, uh, of divorcing uh, his wife. So... 
أما عائشة said فأما أسامة بن زيد فأشار على رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم بالذي يعلم من براءة أهله وبالذي يعلم له في نفسه من الود فقال يا رسول الله أهلك ما نعلم إلا خيرا so أسامة he Usama told the Prophet of what he knew of the good reputation of his wives. All right. And he said, O Messenger of Allah, keep your wife. Keep your wife. Hold on to your wife. Keep your wife. He said, because we do not know anything but good about her. We do not know anything except good about her. Hold on to your wife. Hold on to your wife. The only thing that we know about your wife is good, man. Don't let her go, man. Don't cut her loose, man. We don't know anything but good about Aisha. All right? He knew that Aisha was innocent, and he knew because, as the narration mentioned, that his love for Aisha, his respect for Aisha, this shows you they didn't dislike each other. Because of his love for Aisha and his respect for Aisha. And he said that, you know, <laughs> I only know good about Aisha. Don't, don't, don't divorce her. Hold on to her. This is a 15-year-old boy. Aisha, she says, uh, Aisha continued, she said, Ali ibn Abi Talib, فقال يا رسول الله لم يضيق الله عليك. Ali bin Abi Talib, he said to the Prophet ﷺ something a little different. He said, O Messenger of Allah, Allah does not impose restrictions on you. And there are many women other than Aisha. There are women other than her. There are many women other than Aisha. Allah did not restrict you, meaning you can marry as many women as you want to. Allah did not put restrictions on you in terms of how many wives you can have. And there are tons of other women out there other than Aisha. He said, yet you might want to ask the maidservant of Aisha who will tell you the truth. She'll tell you no lie. She'll tell you no lie, meaning Aisha's maidservant. She's around Aisha all the time. Aisha spends a lot of time with her. So Ali ibn Abi Talib he's not necessarily telling the Prophet to divorce Aisha. But as Hafid ibn Hajar is saying that Ali ibn Abi Talib, he was seeing the Prophet frustrated, seeing him hurting, seeing him go through this on a day-to-day -day basis. And he was just trying to help the Prophet ﷺ, you know, kind of alleviate the pain that he was experiencing. He wasn't necessarily, he didn't, he didn't impose on the Prophet ﷺ to divorce Aisha. He simply said, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not restrict you. Meaning, you know, if you wanted to marry, you know, if you wanted to marry somebody else, you know, you can go ahead and marry somebody else. You know, to kind of take your take your attention off of Aisha. Because I see that you're hurting. I see that you're in pain. Nothing against Aisha, but everything against the pain that the Prophet ﷺ is experiencing. We're talking about men 
Abu Bakr anhu, when they were running from, from Mecca, leaving Mecca, going to Medina, don't you know that Abu Bakr anhu, used to walk in front of the Prophet wasallam, and then he would walk on his right, and then he would walk on his left, and then he would walk behind him. And the Prophet wasallam, noticed Abu Bakr doing this, and he turns to Abu Bakr and then he says, Abu Bakr, he said, Abu Bakr, it's as if you are afraid for me, like, like you. And Abu Bakr said, Wallahi, I khafu alayk. He said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, Wallahi, I fear for you. I wouldn't want any harm to come to you. So I walk in front of you. I walk on your right. I walk on your left. And I walk behind you so that if any harm was to come to you, it would come to me first. These are the type of individuals that are around him. They hated seeing him hurt. They hated seeing him in distress. They hated seeing him in pain. So he tells the Prophet Allah didn't restrict you. As men, Muslim men, we are restricted to four wives. You can marry as many women as you want to. And there's so many other women out there other than Aisha. You don't have to deal with this. You don't have to stay in this situation. He said, but if you want the truth of the matter, then go talk to her maidservant. It wasn't nothing against Aisha. It was nothing personal against Aisha. And when you read narrations where Ali didn't like, anytime you see something like that, you know that that's Shiite material. Shiite material, because they use this hadith in particular to you know, to aid and support their narrative of Aisha, don't you know that the Shiite, till this day, still hold the belief that Aisha actually committed zina and that Aisha is going to the hellfire and that the Prophet Allah forgive me for even repeating this, but this is in their books of Aqidah. This is in their books. Allah forgive me for even repeating it. But the Shiite, many of them hold that Aisha is an adulteress and that she will be punished in the hellfire, and that the private part of the Prophet ﷺ that entered Aisha will be punished in the hellfire. This is what they believe. This is what they hold to be part of their aqidah, part of their belief system. You understand? They say that the Prophet ﷺ's private part will be punished in the hellfire for sleeping with Aisha, who was an adulterer. You understand? Their beliefs go so much more deeper. Wallahaladheem, I'm trembling on the inside right now just even repeating that in public. But I want you guys to understand that when you start seeing, the moment you mention that, I'm just like, here we go with the Shiite stuff, man. SubhanAllah, this is why it's important for you to understand the Aqidah of Ahl Sunnah. There is a whole entire chapter in every book of Aqidah, whole entire chapter dedicated to our position on the Sahaba and our position and more specifically on Aisha. Because as Hafid ibn Hajar mentions here, Ibn Qayyim mentions, and many other scholars, anyone who holds Aisha to be an adulteress, after the revelation of those ayats and Surah to Nur, they are a capper, they are a disbeliever. Is it haram to be a Shiite? Some sects of Shiiteism, the person is a kafir, is a disbeliever. They're not even Muslim. 
What do you mean is it haram to be a Shiite? It's kufr to be a Shiite. And keep in mind, the Shiites are not all one sect. They're not a, you know, they're not monolithic. But, you know, you got to be in, you know, I want you guys to, you know, be able to understand, you know, what, and this is why, when we, you know, we're hard about, you know, speaking, you know, respectfully about the Sahaba, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that when my companions are mentioned with refrain, hold your tongue. Hold your tongue. Be mindful. This is a serious chapter in the books of Aqidah of Ahlul Sunnah. There's a whole chapter dealing with the Sahaba and what is our belief about them and what is our belief about some of the quarreling that went on between them and you know what, what should our position be. This is very, very important. All right. So, Ali ibn Abi Talib, as the scholars say, you know, that Ali is taking the lesser of the two evils. One evil would be to divorce her. The other would be to just marry somebody else to try to help forget about it. And that's what Ali ibn Abi Talib is trying to do. And he didn't insist upon the Prophet Sallallahu divorcing her. He said, you know, if you want the truth of the matter, then you can go and talk to her maidservant. And it was as if Ali was saying, if you want immediate relief, then you can marry somebody else, let her go. And if you want other than that, then you can go seek the truth of the matter until her exoneration is manifest by revelation. However, what Ali ibn Abi Talib didn't realize that by saying that or making that comment, although it appeared to give the Prophet ﷺ immediate relief, um, it also made her look like she was actually kind of guilty. You know what I mean? It was, it also, you know, kind of made, you know, people say, well, if his own cousin told him to kind of let her go and marry somebody else, then, then that means that, you know, she was actually guilty of something. And, um, you know, and, you know, even some of like Muawiyah and some of the people later on kind of took issue with Ali ibn Abi Talib for, you know, making that comment. And it shows you that sometimes we could see things from one perspective and not know how it's going to impact the overall situation. All right. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, now he goes to the maidservant. Now he goes to the maidservant following the advice of Ali ibn Abi Talib, radiallahu so, فَدَعَى رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ Barira. Barira is the maidservant of Aisha. If you remember Barira, I gave a lecture some time ago um, about Barira and her husband, Mughith. Barira was a maidservant who eventually purchased her freedom. She asked Aisha to help her purchase her freedom. Her and Aisha had grown really cl close to each other. And she asked Aisha to help her you know, earn her freedom. So Aisha borrowed money from the Prophet Wasallam, gave it to Barira for her to purchase her freedom, which she eventually did. When she purchased her freedom, uh, her husband, Mughith, you know, now she's a free woman, not allowed to be married to a slave. So she had the option to either continue being with him or to leave him. And Barira chose to leave him. And Abdullah bin Abbas mentions that in the hadith, 
He said, can I not show you uh, a woman who uh, a, a man loves her, but she doesn't love him? And Mugith is chasing Barira down the street, crying, begging her not to leave him. And the Prophet ﷺ goes to Barira and says to her, you know, he, he's the father of your, uh, of your child. You know, don't leave him like that. And Barira turns to the Prophet Sallallahu and she said, Oh, Messenger of Allah, are you atemuruni? Are you commanding me to go with Mughith or do I have a choice? You know, are you commanding me to go with her, or go with uh, Mughith or do I have a choice? And the Prophet Sallallahu said, I'm just trying to intercede for the poor guy. You don't have to go with him. And, and Barira said, I don't have no desire to be. She chose, she chose herself. اختارت نفسها. اختارت نفسها. She chose herself. In that moment, she didn't, she's free. She doesn't want any more reminders of where she came from. And there's nobody that should question, well, why did she do that? That was wrong or whatever the case may be. You didn't, you're not in that person's situation. So, and, and oftentimes this is exactly what happens when a person chooses themselves. When I finally choose me, Everybody and their mother have a problem with it. But when I'm choosing everybody else, when I put you in front of me, I put you in front of me, I put you in front of me, when I put everybody else first, I'm all good. But the moment I choose me, I say no, and I choose me and my happiness and my well-being, now everybody has a problem. And that's the whole purpose of that story, learning how to choose you. And you don't owe anybody an explanation when you decide to choose you. You don't owe anybody an explanation. When I choose you and I'm constantly, you know, exerting myself for everybody else, nobody has a problem with it. The one time I say no, because I'm choosing me, I'm choosing my happiness, I'm choosing my well-being, now everybody has an issue. No, please. Nobody should question her as to why she said no. She just chose not to be with him in that moment because she chose her. All right? So that is Barira, Aisha's close friend, right? So the Prophet ﷺ for da'a Rasulullah ﷺ Barira. So the Prophet ﷺ calls Barira. And listen to what this conversation, listen how this conversation plays out. I spent time, so much time, just pondering over this conversation between the Prophet Sallallahu and Barira. It's just such a beautiful conversation, all right? Because they're not on equal footing here. Barira's a slave. She's a servant. And she's talking to the messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. You understand? They're not on an equal footing. But listen to what Barira says. So the Prophet Sallallahu says to her, he says to Barira, Have you seen ever anything uh, as it relates to Aisha? Have you ever seen anything as it relates to her that would make you doubt, that would have aroused your suspicion as it regards to Aisha? Have you ever seen anything that would have aroused your suspicion about Aisha. Listen to what Barita says. 
She says, Barira, she says to the Prophet Sallallahu he asked her, have you ever seen anything that would make you doubt Aisha's innocence? You know, have you ever seen anything that would arouse your suspicion about Aisha? And she said, I swear by the one who sent you with the truth. Notice, she didn't say, I swear by Allah. She didn't say, I swear by Allah. She said, I swear by the one who sent you with the truth. Meaning, I'm not speaking to you from an equal footing. You are the messenger of Allah, and I'm just a little old servant girl. She said, but I swear by the one who sent you with the truth. Meaning, between me and you is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So don't think that I'm going to avoid lying because of your position, but I would have refrained from lying because of the one that is above you, meaning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is Tawheed. You understand? This is a slave girl who understands that. This is a slave. This is not somebody who used to follow him around, but she was close friends with Aisha, so it speaks volumes. You understand? It speaks volumes. It's very poetic. She said, I swear by the one who sent you with the truth. Meaning, although we are not on equal footing and you might think for a moment, you might think that I'm not going to lie because you are the messenger of Allah. But I have one more serious that I need to worry about. And that's Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You understand? You understand? Like, I don't think that I'm not going to lie because you're standing in front of me. I'm more worried about God than I am worried about you. She said, I swear by the one who sent you with the truth. <laughs> you understand what I'm saying? SubhanAllah, these people, Tawheed was infused, was ingrained into their very being. It wasn't no long, drawn out, six-week classes teaching from books of Tawheed. This was Tawheed in practice, infused into their daily rudimentary interactions and engagements with one another. You understand? She said, I swear by the one who sent you with the truth. I swear by the one who sent you with the truth. She said, let me find my place. She said, I swear by the one who has sent you with the truth. I have never seen anything faulty about Aisha, except that she is a young girl who is in, of an immature age, who sometimes sleeps and leaves the dough of her family unprotected so that the domestic goats come in and eat it. That's the only issue that I have with Aisha. You understand? That's the only issue that I have with Aisha. She's a young girl, very immature. So sometimes she bakes the dough or she puts the dough together, leaves it on the counter, goes to sleep, 
and the domestic goats that come in and out the house, you know, this is like they live in a desert. So like the front door is like a curtain. So goats and, you know, animals, kind of sheep just walk in and out and they see the dough on the counter and they eat it while she's sleeping. That's the only, you know, just her, just small, immature little things. That's the only issue that I have with Aisha. Only issue that I have with Aisha. In another narration, Barita, she said, Wallahi, la Aisha atiyabu min al-dhahab, la in kanat sama'at ma qala al-nas, la yukhbirannaka Allahu subhanahu wa ta'ala min fokus sama'at. Subhanallah. In another narration, Barida said to the Prophet, Aisha is more pure than gold. Aisha is more pure than gold. She said, if Aisha had done what people are saying that she did, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have informed you from above the heavens. She's the same woman Allah married you to from above the heavens. And if she had been guilty of what people are accusing her of, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have informed you from above the heavens. Just as Allah married you to Aisha from above the heavens, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have informed you of anything if Aisha was guilty from above the heavens. SubhanAllah. What does Barira mean that Allah married the Prophet Sallallahu to Aisha from above the heavens? What does she mean by that? Let me see who can catch that. What does she mean by that? She's trying to tell the Prophet Sallallahu like, dude, think about it. If Allah revealed to you that you were going to marry her before you married her, I came to you by way of revelation. Don't you think that if she was guilty for what she did, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would have informed you from above the heavens? Like, come on, think about it, man. Think about it. Right, the dream. The Prophet sallallahu saw him marrying Aisha in a dream. Aisha was seen, the Prophet Sallallahu saw her in a dream and he married her and he knew he was, she was presented to him, right, in a silken cloth. And we know that revelation came to the Prophet Sallallahu by way of dreams in, in many instances. So the dream that he saw that he was marrying Aisha was actually revelation that he was going to marry her. So Barira saying to him, think about it. If Allah showed you Aisha in a dream as revelation that you were going to matter, don't you think that if she was guilty of what she did, then Allah would have revealed that to you from the same revelation? SubhanAllah. And so people were like amazed at Barira's. And this is the benefit of being around someone who is knowledgeable because who was Barira's best friend? None other than Aisha. It just kind of wear, it kind of wear, wore off on Barira being around Aisha. You, you understand? <laughs> SubhanAllah. 
So, what does the Prophet ﷺ do next? The Prophet ﷺ did what any frustrated man would do. Uh, he took to the mimbar. He took to the mimbar. And he's now about to address it in a public, on a public platform. All right? فَقَامَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم فَاسْتَعْذَرَ يَوْمَئِذٍ مِنْ عَبْدِ اللَّهِ بِنْ أُبَيْ بِنْ سَلُولِ قَالَتْ فَقَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم وَهُوَ عَلَى الْمِنْبَرِ So the Prophet ﷺ, what does he do? What any frustrated leader, imam would do, he has to now go use the minbar to his advantage. The power, this is going to show you the power of the minbar, the power of public address which is something, you know, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, I didn't translate it in English. That's his name. There's nothing to translate. His name is Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. There's nothing to translate in English. That, that's his name. Um, show you the power of the mimbar. And this is something that unfortunately in today's time, many imams, students of knowledge, preachers, teachers, leaders who mount the minbars do not use the platform that the minbar represents in the proper way. They use the minbar for, I mean, I remember, let me just say this. I remember um, in Sheikh Uthaymin's explanation of the three fundamental principles. In that book, he mentions towards the back of the book, in that explanation, he said, he mentions uh, a statement of uh, a Shiite who said that if the people of Ahlul Sunnah were to give me, to let me mount their minbars, I would turn everybody from Ahlul Sunnah into a Shiite. Showing you the power of the minbar, showing the power of the minbar that the people of Sunnah should be using the minbar as one of the most powerful tools of public expression, of public address, public awareness that we have. And we're, we're not using the minbar for the, you know, in a way where it's most effective. You got people who get on minbars and talk about other imams and talk about other students and knowledge. And here you have a grand opportunity. Sometimes non-Muslims are coming. Muslims bring their non-Muslim coworkers and friends and you are on the minbar backbiting and talking about another student of knowledge, another imam who you're jealous of or another imam who you feel is getting more recognition and acknowledgement than you are. And you're gonna tear him down on a minbar rather than using the minbar for what it is in order to convert people to Islam, to call people to Islam, to invite people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to make the Muslims love God, love, love Allah more, to make non-Muslims respect Islam more. Why are we not benefiting from the minbar as powerful as a platform that is? But you get on the minbar and you're talking about the, you know, random trivial issues about the dean that has nothing to do with nothing. Instagram, you're going to cut off. I'll turn you back on and show you. It's just, uh, for the life of me, I just, I can't understand how we have abused something so powerful like the minbar. It's a very powerful tool, man.
But the Prophet وسلم, um, he goes and he uses the mimbar now, you know, to bring it to the public. All right, the public is already talking about it, but he needs to now gain, garner the, the assistance that he needs. And what a better way to do that than to get on the mimbar and bring it to the community's attention. To bring it to the community's attention. So Aisha, she narrates, she says that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he got on the mimbar. فَقَامَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَى اللَّهِ وَسَلَّمْ يَسْتَعْذِرُ So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he got up on the mimbar to address the people and ask for people who would support him in punishing Abdullah ibn Ubayn. He's asking now for support, garnering, you know, that support, calling for the support that he needs from the mimbar at this point. Showing you now the power of the mimbar, the power of public address, all right? When you learn how to utilize the mimbar, it's a very powerful tool, man. Very powerful tool if you learn how to use it. So the Prophet ﷺ gets on the mimbar and he begins to address the people and ask for people who would support him in punishing Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul. The Prophet ﷺ on the mimbar, he said, O Muslims, who will support me in punishing the man who has hurt me by slandering the reputation of my family? Who will support me? Who will support me in punishing the man? And notice the Prophet ﷺ never mentioned Abdullah's name. The scholars mentioned that he didn't mention Abdullah's name is because most people already knew who he was talking about. And second of, all, second of all, he didn't want to call the guy out by name on the mimbar, that, you know, making him more popular. If you know, you know. You understand? It was one of those situations. Those of you who know, you know. Al-ma'roof la yu'arraf. Something that is known doesn't have to be explained. You understand? But he never mentioned his name on the mimbar. And if this was a hypocrite who harmed the Prophet's family, and the Prophet never mentioned his name on the mimbar because that's not the place for the mimbar, then why is it that we find today, you know, students of knowledge, preachers, teachers, mentioning people's names on the mimbar on Friday in an, in an, in an address to the public? This is supposed to be a time where you're reminding people of Allah, time for, you know, people to be, you know, brought back to the remembrance of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and you have students of knowledge who are on the mimbar, abusing the mimbar, mentioning people by name for their own purpose, for their own agenda. You know what I mean? It's not like it's, it's benefiting the greater ummah. It's not. It's actually harming the ummah. But we still do it. And this shows the Prophet frustration and his belief about Aisha's innocence because he said, who is it that will assist me? Ya ma'ashar al-Muslimin. Who will aid me and assist me in punishing the man who has harmed me and my family? Who has brought harm to me and to my family? And this shows that the Prophet ﷺ knew that Aisha was innocent. He knew that she was innocent. He said, oh Muslims, who will support me to punish the man who uh, hurt me by slandering the reputation of my family? He said, by Allah, I know nothing except good about my family, and they have accused 
They have accused a person about whom I know nothing except good, and he has never entered my house except in my company. Who is he referring to? Who is he referring to? He said, Ya Ma'ashar al Muslimin, Men Ya'adiruni, Men Rajilin Kad Belagani Adahu fi Ahli Baiti. Said, O Muslims, who will assist me in punishing the man, he never said his name, punishing the man who has hurt me and my family? He said, For Wallahi ma'alim tu ala ahli illa khayran. He said, Wallahi, I only know good about my family. This is the Prophet's first time in public defending Aisha. This is his first time addressing the community in public. Almost a, a month has gone by now. He hasn't said anything in public, waiting for revelation to come down because the Prophet hated to speak before revelation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala described him that he does not speak from his own accord. He only speaks from revelation revealed to him. So the Prophet he disliked talking before revelation was revealed to him. So he's waiting patiently, waiting patiently. But he goes to Ali, he goes to Usama, he hears from Barira what kind of confirms what he was feeling. It's like, all right, that's enough. After he heard from Barira, he goes straight to the mimbar and he calls for support from the Muslim community. And he says, who will aid me and assist me in punishing the individual who has, you know, brought, you know, this slander on my family? He said, wallahi, I only know good about my family. He's affirming in front of the community that he has no doubts about his wife. He's affirming in front of the community that he has no doubts about his wife. All right? He said, Wallahi ala ahli illa khayran. He said, but by Allah, I only know good about my family. He said, وَمَا كَانَ يَدْخُلُوا عَلَىٰ أَهْلِي إِلَّا مَعِينَ وَلَقَدْ ذَكَرُوا رَجْلًا مَا عَلِمْتُ عَلَيْهِ إِلَّا خَيْرًا وَمَا كَانَ يَدْخُلُوا عَلَىٰ أَهْلِي إِلَّا مَعِينَ He said, and they have also harmed another man that I only know good about. And he has never entered upon my family except in my presence. Who is the Prophet ﷺ referring to? He's referring to Safwan ibn Mu'attib, the one who found Aisha. So he's now defending Aisha and Safwan. And that brings us to lesson number 30. And that is that Part, in, part of having kawama, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the Muslim men as a kawamuna ala nisa, protectors and maintainers of the women. Protectors and maintainers of the women. And part of being a protector over the woman is to protect her honor. To protect her honor. It's to protect her physically, but also to protect her spiritually and to protect her morally. To protect her emotionally to protect her honor. And the Prophet ﷺ represented that on multiple, uh, multiple occasions. When Safiya, Aisha said to Safiya, you are the daughter of a Jewish man. You're not an Arab. <laughs> Ibn Yahudiya, you are the daughter of a Jewish woman. You're not Arab. 
And Sophia went to the Prophet Sallallahu crying. She's crying. This woman just insulted me. Your wife just insulted me, insulted my lineage. The Prophet Sallallahu took his thumbs and he wiped the tears from Sophia's face. And he says, Sophia, he said, Inna ki la ibn Wa ibn ta'ammi nabi. Ibn ta'ammik nabi. Wa anti tahtin nabi. Faman yatafakhar ala hana. The Prophet wipes Sophia's tears with his thumbs. And he says to Sophia that indeed you are the daughter of a prophet, you are the niece of a prophet, and you are married to a prophet. Who is it that has something greater than that that they can brag about? You understand? Meaning, you are the daughter of a prophet, meaning Prophet Musa is the, the father of the of Bani Israel. You are the niece of a prophet, meaning Prophet Harun, and you are married to a prophet, meaning me. What does anybody else have that is greater than that that they can brag about? You understand? He supported her emotionally. And then he went to um, uh, Aisha, not, excuse me, not Aisha, Hafsa. And he said, Ittaqillah, fear Allah, Hafsa. Fear Allah. He defended the honor of his wife. Now you're not going to insult my wife like that and I'm not going to say anything. First, I'm going to validate her feelings and then I'm going to go to my other wife and I'm going to check her. You understand? That's what a man does. You don't get to insult my wife like that. She's just as much my wife as you are. And you don't have a right to insult her. And you don't think that you're going to insult her and I'm just going to tell her to be patient. That's just who you are. La wallahi, I'm going to correct it. Even when Aisha smacked the plate out of the maidservant's hand, the Prophet ﷺ picked up the pieces and he took one of Aisha's plates and he, and she, he replaced the plate that, that she broke. You understand? You don't get to just wild out and I'm just going to leave it like that. No, you don't get to do that, man. But as a man, your responsibility is to defend the honor of your wife emotionally, physically. You understand? Nah, you don't get to just wild out and I'm supposed to just leave it like that. La wallahi, you're going to get checked. You understand? You're going to get checked. And don't try to run the, oh, so what, you love her now? Absolutely. Just like I love you. I know that hurts, but you got to get over it. This is what you, the situation you married into. Get out of your feelings. <laughs> Step back into reality, man. Don't let your feelings, you know, overcloud your judgment. <laughs> Absolutely. Just because the Prophet ﷺ loved Aisha more than everybody doesn't mean he didn't love his other wives. Don't get it twisted. <laughs> but he protected them. No, you don't get to just wild out. You don't get to just do you and I'm supposed to just be patient with that and the rest of my wives supposed to just tolerate that and be okay with that. La wallahi. La wallahi. But it speaks to the position that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives the men in the relationship, and that is to be qawam, to be, you know, the qawama, to be protectors and maintainers of his wives. The Prophet sallallahu gets on the minbar and defends his, uh, the honor of his wife on the minbar in front of everybody. He has a right that she has a right that her honor be protected. Some men marry women and let, you know, their, their current wife disrespect them or let their families disrespect them 
you know, or they hide the wife so as to avoid scrutiny, to avoid, you know, being mocked or being, you know, understand? So the woman's honor is always in jeopardy because this coward of a man won't protect her, won't stand up and defend her. The moment your wife says to you as a man, oh, so what, you love her now? You, no, it ain't like that. I'm just saying, though, you know, come on, man. Get, man, listen, man. Grow a vertebrae. There's a curve in your vertebrae. Straighten up. Straighten your back up. No woman is going to respect you. Stop with the politics. Stop with the diplomacy. Like sometimes diplomacy goes out the window and I need to put you in your place. I need to let you feel what it means to be an adult. I have to take the gloves off and I have to let you feel the weight of what it means to be an adult. Sorry. But you have some men, you know, the woman retorts, oh, so what you, you going to defend her? Absolutely, I'm going to defend her the same way I would defend you if you were on, you don't, you let people talk about me like a dog. You don't defend me. You don't know what I do in your absence. I don't, it's not obligation on me to come to you and tell you every single time I defend your honor. It's not, it's not an obligation on me. I got to let you know every single time your name comes up in a conversation and I defended you. Just know have Husnul run with me, that just as I check you for bringing up another wife of mine, I will check somebody else for bringing up your name. If I would do it to you, then I would do it for you. You understand? If I would do it to you, then I would do it for you. You understand? So the Prophet Sallallahu gets on the mimbar and he's defending his wife in public in front of everybody. You understand? And this is lesson number 30. The right of a woman's, you know, to be defended, for her honor to be defended. Women in these situations sometimes feel no security, not even from her own husband. We have a dual responsibility to protect ourselves from the harm of others and to protect others from our harm. You have some, some brothers who destroy the honor of their wives in the, front, in the presence of the other wife because you're talking about one wife to another wife. That's rule number one in the handbook of polygyny. You don't do that. You don't ever let a woman bait you into a conversation where you begin to mention the flaws of your other wife so that you appear to be balanced. Hell no, that's not your place. Oh, so you want to defend her? Absolutely, I would defend her just like I defended you. If that makes you uncomfortable, then I'm sorry. I don't know what else to tell you. And notice the Prophet ﷺ as we move on to lesson. Uh, so we have a responsibility to protect people, to protect people from our harm and to protect ourselves from the harm of other people. The Prophet ﷺ used to make the dua when he would leave the home. Allahumma inni a'udhubika an adilla aw udalla aw azilla aw uzalla aw avlam aw udlam aw ajhala aw yujhala ali. The Prophet ﷺ used to say when he would leave his home, Oh Allah, I seek refuge with you from going astray or leading somebody else astray, or going astray or leading somebody else astray, or making a mistake or causing somebody else to make a mistake or oppressing someone, or having someone oppress me, or being ignorant or indignant with someone, or having someone be indignant with me. I seek refuge with you from both of that. 
I seek, I seek refuge with you from being indignant and ignorant with somebody or having somebody be indignant and ignorant with me. You understand? You have a dual responsibility to protect yourself from the harm of others and to protect others from your harm. Lesson number 31, framing your perception based upon certainty. The importance of protecting the honor of someone that you have history with. The Prophet ﷺ said, and he has harmed a man that I have known nothing but good about and has never entered upon my family except in my presence. Framing your perception based upon certainty. The Prophet ﷺ is looking at the history that he had with Safwan, despite what is being spread about him now, despite what is being said about him now. But he's looking at the history that he has with Safwan. That I know this man. This man participated in the Battle of Badr. He defended me and protected me, despite what is being said about him now. Because I'm framing my perception of him based upon what I am certain about. I am not certain what is being said about him, but what I am certain of is the history that I have with him. You understand? Framing your perception based upon certainty. This is a thick principle that could be used in other areas of our lives. The thick principle, for example, if you are sure that you use the bathroom, it's time for maghrib. You are sure that you use the bathroom, but you're not sure whether or not you made wudu when you came out of the bathroom. What do you do in this situation? You frame your perception based upon what you are certain of. You are certain that you use the bathroom. You are in doubt as to whether or not you made wudu, then guess what you do? You make wudu because you're going based upon what you are certain of. So you're about to make the tech beer and you like, dag, I know I use the bathroom, but I can't remember what I made wudu. The thing that you are in doubt about is your wudu. The thing that you are certain of is the fact that you use the bathroom. So what do you do? You go with what you are certain with, and that is that you use the bathroom and you go and you make wudu. Vice versa. Let's switch it around so that you understand. Let's say that it's time for maghrib. You're about to make the tech beer. You know that you made wudu, but you can't remember whether or not you've used the bathroom since you made that wudu. You know that you made wudu, but you can't remember whether or not you used the bathroom after you made wudu. What do you do? Some people would say, well, I'm going to go make wudu because I just want to be sure. No, that's not. You go based on what you're sure of. You are sure that you made wudu. What you are in doubt of or a doubt about is whether or not you use the bathroom since that wudu. You pray as you are. You go based upon what you are certain with. You can use that principle in any area of your life. And I explain this, I explain this principle and use many examples in the book that I'm uh, going to release in, in about a week or two uh, on wudu, the rudiments of purification. Very important. I think we're going to do a we're going to do a um, a book club on that book because I'm almost positive that the vast majority of Muslims are not aware of all of the intricacies of wudu. I'm I'm 100% positive about that. But these are some of the issues that we discuss in that book. But I'm using that principle here. He's framing his perception based upon what he's certain. He is not 
He's not buying into what's being said about him. But he's also looking back at the history that he has with Sukhwan. And this is especially true if you don't know if what is being said about the person is true or not. You go with what you are certain with, framing your perception based upon certainty. And the fact of the matter is that the Prophet ﷺ knew it wasn't true. What was being said about Safwan wasn't true. And it was even more of an incentive for him to defend him. But the Prophet ﷺ didn't just focus on Aisha. The Prophet ﷺ didn't just focus on Aisha and leave Safwan. What was being said about Safwan is the same thing that's being said about Aisha. So if I'm going to jump out there and defend Aisha, then I'm also going to defend Safwan. How could I just leave him out there? The link to purchase the book is from, you can use my PayPal, Imam Shadid Muhammad at Gmail. Imam Shadid Muhammad at Gmail.com. And that's the PayPal, that's the link to my PayPal account if you would like to purchase the book. The book is $16 plus uh, $10 for shipping, inshallah. That's $26, inshallah. All right. If you have any doubts about anything, just email me, Imam Shadid Muhammad at Gmail, and I'll fill you in on all the details. But the book, inshallah, is being is currently being edited. Uh, so soon as it's done, put the final touches on it and send it to the printer. Uh, hopefully, in a, another week or so, the book should be ready. But that will be our next book for our book club. Um, because I'm almost positive with so many people coming into the fold of Islam today and many people not having access to proper knowledge, people not having access to their local masajid, I'm almost positive that many Muslims are not aware of all of the intricate details surrounding wudu. I'm 100% I'm positive. I guarantee you, after studying this book, your mind will be blown about the details of purification from an Islamic standpoint. So the Prophet ﷺ didn't just focus on Aisha and leave Safwan, they were both innocently being accused and being slandered. And this is especially important today in today's time with this cancel culture. Cancel culture, right? And that is uh, where everyone will turn their backs on you if in fact your name is associated with something that is somehow seen as politically incorrect, regardless if it's true or not. This is the cancel culture that we live in today. All your name gotta do is come up or be associated with something that people feel like is politically incorrect and people will cut you loose. It doesn't matter how long they've known you, what your history is, how long y'all had history, how much business you have done in the past. People don't care about none of that. The fact of the matter is that your name came up in this conversation or associated with this group or that group and we're going to cancel you. I have been a victim of the cancel culture within the Islamic community. The Muslims will literally cancel you you are not back in, you are not invited to this program anymore. We don't call you anymore. And then the way we do it is so unprofessional. It's so unprofessional. Meaning we got history. I've been coming to your conference for years. I've, I've been a, one of the main speakers at your conference for years, since, since the very beginning. And then all of the sudden, because you're inviting, you know, one of your A-list imams and you don't want to be associated with Shadid Muhammad and his, his drama. So we just totally not invite you. We don't send you no email. We don't say thanks for your years of support. We don't say, you know, we appreciate everything that you've helped us build up to this point. Nothing. Just we don't send you an email. You're no longer good for their brand, right? 
I can't tell you how many times I've been a victim of that. We just don't invite you back anymore. It's like, what did I do? <laughs> like, you, like no email saying, you know, we've appreciated you, you know, but this year we're thinking about going in a different direction. It's cool. I, I mean, I don't have a problem with that. <laughs> I'm not starving to be a part of your, part of your brand. I helped you build your brand. <laughs> I helped you build your brand. Your brand wouldn't be your brand had it not been for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, and then Shadi Muhammad. You understand what I'm saying? Like, I'm not, I'm, I'm not starving to, you know, be a part of your brand. But the fact of the matter is just how you do it. You just cancel the person. No email, no, you know, see you in public, see you in person. It's just no, no man to man. Hey, we appreciate everything that you've done in the past and all that you have contributed to, you know, what our platform is today. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you. Nothing. Just, you never hear from them again, ever. You never hear from them again. I can't tell you how many people that have done that to me. And I'm pretty sure other people have been victims of that as well. But this is the cancel culture, even within the Muslim community. The cancel culture, real, even within the Muslim community. And all it takes, it has a domino effect because as Muslims, many times, especially organizations, they're just followers. They're followers of trends. They're followers of the wave and whatever is cool. Everybody, oh, this is what everybody's doing right now. So I'm going to jump on what everybody else is doing. I can't, and I can't tell you how many people I have canceled. And, and the difference between me and them is I'll let you know that I'm canceling. No, I'm not. I'm not sharing your platform. I'm not coming on your podcast. I don't want to be a part of your podcast. No, I'm good. I'm not. I don't want to be invited to your events. I don't want to talk about, you know, no, I'm good. The only reason why you're sending me an email, the only reason why you DMing is because it looks from the outside, look like Shadi Muhammad popping sometimes. Like, Oh, it seems like, you know, a lot of, you know, stir around his name. And I go to his Instagram page, you know, he got X amount of thousands of followers. And it seems like he popping right now. Hey, can you come to my podcast and give it to, I ain't coming, freak your podcast. I'm not coming to your podcast. I'm good on your podcast. Go find, you know, some other fodder for your, for your podcast. I'm sorry. Now, all of a sudden, it seems like I'm popping. So you want to send me a DM? Hey, can you come on my podcast? Man, get the freak out of here. Uh, no, nah, I don't want nothing to do with your podcast. Keep it pushing. <laughs> Go with the same lame stories you've been promoting on your podcast. Now you're looking to get your numbers up. So let me go where some heat is coming from and let me see if I can get my number. Man, get out of here. But this is what goes on in the Muslim community. This is facts on top of facts. I kid you not. I kid you not. <laughs> This is the cancel culture in the Muslim community. We just cancel you. We don't send you no more emails. We don't invite you to no more events. There's no email. There's no personal thank you for, for nothing. It's just, we, you just never hear from them again because your name is somehow associated with something that we don't necessarily get down with or, you know, or we're trying to appease this particular imam or this particular student of knowledge who we want to invite but we can't invite him if you're here because we know how you feel about him. So we'll choose him over you. You know, 
I, I'm just telling you that this is what goes on. I don't care one way or another. Alhamdulillah, as long as there's a platform, as long as I have, you know, blood is flowing through my veins and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given me the ability to speak my peace unrestrictedly, I will always have a voice. Walilah alhamd, I will always have a voice. But I'm just letting you, you guys know that this is what goes on behind the scenes. It's the same cancel culture even within the Islamic community. The same cancel culture goes on even within the Muslim community. And, you know, all under the guise of I got to protect my brand, right? So if it means disassociating yourself from a Muslim or Muslims that you have known throughout the years that you have history with, you understand? that you have history with, disassociating yourself from them, you know what I mean? That, then that's what it means. <laughs> that's what it means. Because fairness, you know, and the rights of others is not as important as your brand. Nothing is as important as your brand, mashallah. You got to protect your brand. So the Prophet wasallam says, you know, who will assist me? Who will aid me in uh, punishing this individual who has harmed me and my family? This is the first time the Prophet Wasallam is on the minbar defending his wife. Defending his wife. And believe it or not, a lot of these organizations and events, they, they have their five minutes of fame. And then it crumbles because as I told one, one brother, and I told him in his organization, I said, he said, what, can, what type of advice could you give us as an as a, as a organization or whatever? Uh, I said to him, is to always go back, as the Arabs, they say, I'm going to return back to where I started. Always go back to the original reason why you created the organization to begin with. Organizations lose sight of why they started from the very beginning and they deviate from that and they go astray and eventually they have their five minutes of fame and before you know it they've separated and fragmented even within them their own group because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in control of the hearts and Allah starts to as he did to Bani Israel he starts to create internal friction between them they start the internal fighting between one another and it crumbles because you have not gone back to the original reason why you started it in the beginning. Every single, as one of the scholars, he says that you, uh, every dysfunction starts with a lack of sincerity. Every dysfunction starts with a lack of sincerity. If you cannot go back to the original reason why you started it and keep that at the forefront, you're going to always find yourself, you know, traversing a dark path that you don't know how that is going to end for you. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is in control of the hearts. So you can cut this one off. You can use this one and abuse this one, use this one for fundraisers, collect all of this money, and then don't give the person nothing, right? You can do all of that. And eventually that comes back to you. Allah will place your enmity and hatred between yourselves and you will crumble. I've seen a lot of come, been around long enough to have seen this movie play out multiple times. The in-house fighting. And then when you hear, oh, so-and-so don't mess with so-and-so no more. Oh, so-and-so separated from the group. Uh, oh, so-and-so and that that organization is split up and broke up and you're just like, oh, well, 
I saw that coming. But you can't tell him nothing because we lose sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We lose sight. At the root of every dysfunction is a lack of sincerity. But the Prophet sallallahu uh, he gets on the minbar and he says that, you know, who will assist me against the, the man who has harmed me and my family? So uh, Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh al-Ansari, he got up and he said, Oh, Allah's messenger, by Allah, I will relieve you of this man. If he is from the tribe of Aus, then I will chop his head off. He said, if the guy that you are referring to is from the tribe of Aus, I will cut his head off. He said, and if that man is from our brethren, the Khazraj, then we will order, then order us and we will fulfill your order. On that, another man by the name of Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, one of the chiefs, the chief of the Khazraj, and before this incident, Aisha said that he used to be a pious man, meaning something happened. Before this incident, he was a righteous man. But in this incident, he showed us a different face. He got up motivated by his zeal for his tribe. And he said to Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you have told a lie. You cannot kill him and nor will you be able to kill him. Meaning you can't kill him. Because the Prophet ﷺ didn't give you the order to kill him. So how are you going to say for him to be killed? And the Prophet ﷺ didn't give an order for him to be killed. He said, by Allah, you've lied. You're a liar. He said, you cannot kill him, nor will you ever be able to kill him. Meaning, until the Prophet ﷺ gives the order to do that. On that, Usaid ibn Hudayr, the cousin of Sa'ad ibn Mu'adh, he got up and he said to Sa'ad ibn Ubadah, you are a liar. By Allah, we will surely kill him. And you are a hypocrite because you are defending the hypocrites. He thought that Sa'ad uh, ibn Mu'adh was defending Abdullah ibn Ubay. He wasn't necessarily defending him. He was defending more of his tribe because he was from Khazraj. You understand? He was from the Khazraj. So they're looking at it from a tribal thing. Like, how are you going to jump up and say, if he's from Aus, you're going to chop his head off. But if he's from Khazraj, then the Prophet can give you the command and you'll kill him. Like, the Prophet, وسلم, number one, is not going to give the command to kill him. So you're a liar. That's not going to happen. Usaid ibn Hudayr, who was Saad's cousin, stands up and said, no, you're a liar. Because you're sitting here defending a hypocrite. You are a hypocrite because you're sitting here defending the hypocrite. And he wasn't necessarily defending the hypocrite. He was kind of defending his tribe. It was a tribal thing, right? Because remember, this issue had come up beforehand on, this journey, on the journey when the other one hit the other one and he said, stand up, Aus, stand up, Khazraj. So, you know, mind you, these two tribes, they were fighting with each other for years. And it wasn't up until recent when the Prophet ﷺ migrated to Medina and they embraced Islam that they kind of, you know, set aside their tribal differences. But up until that point, they had been fighting for generations. And all it takes is for the smallest little spark to send them right back to that space. And that's a lesson for us. Lesson number 31 for us. When, when people are deeply rooted in their pre-Islamic traditional practices and cultural practices, it's very important that, you know, we do not use that as a reference anymore because all it takes is for one little incident 
for people to resort back to their pre-Islamic behavior. Absolutely, it was about to go down. We've seen this before. We've seen this play out before when they were on the journey coming back to Medina and they got into it. So now it's another tribal issue and the Prophet Sallallahu is on the minbar trying to calm everybody down. You know, Sa'ad, Mu'ad, Ibn, Ibn Mu'ad stands up, Sa'ad, you know, uh, 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 Ibn Ubadah stands up, Usaid Ibn Hudayr, and then now the Khazraj and the Os, they're getting ready to, you know, they're getting ready to go back to that place. And it's very important that, you know, we're mindful of our actions because the smallest little spark can send us right back to our pre-Islamic behavior. Very important for us to avoid, you know, return, you know, using where we came from as our references because it puts us right back in that space. He said, we will surely kill him and you are a hypocrite defending the hypocrites. On this, Two tribes of Al-Aws and Khazraj got excited until they were on the verge of fighting one another. And Allah's Messenger وسلم, is on the minbar trying to calm, motioning with his hand, trying to quiet everybody down until they became silent. Whereupon the Prophet وسلم, became silent. Aisha said, on that day, I kept on weeping so much that neither did my tears stop nor could I sleep. She said, in the morning, my parents were with me and I had wept for two nights straight and a day without sleeping and with the incessant tears until they thought that my liver would burst due to weeping. That's how much I cried. I'm just crying. Because she's hearing, she's in the house, but she's hearing about all of this on the minbar. And while my parents were with me, I was weeping and Ansari woman came to ask permission to see me. And I admitted her and she sat next to me and start weeping with me. This shows you the sisterhood. The Prophet ﷺ said that the believers are like one body. When one part aches, the other part stays up at night with, you know, you know, sleeplessness and, you know, and, and, and fever. You understand? And sorry, woman knows Aisha's at home or whatever. So she asked permission to enter upon Aisha. And she just sits with Aisha, holding her hand, crying along with her. That is the sisterhood of Islam. Strange woman, don't even know Aisha. Knows that she's the prophet's wife, but that's it. Doesn't know her personally. Aisha doesn't even know her name. Hafid ibn al-Hajr, who explained the hadith, as, as well as Imam Noah, we never even mentioned the woman's name. Hafid said, I searched for her name. I didn't even find out who the woman was. She wasn't nobody. Was no, not nobody, but she was not somebody significant in the community. Not a known figure in the community. But she, right, she bonded with Aisha during that time of pain. That's the sisterhood in Islam. I don't have to know you to know what you're going through. You understand? I don't have to know you to know what you're going through. That's the brotherhood and sisterhood of Islam. I remember when uh, the three Muslims were murdered in North Carolina, and there was all of this hoopla in the Muslim community about the murder of those three Muslims, right? And I wrote an article about that, you know, just trying to, from an African-American perspective and how the community, we are affected by that as well, you know? And that article just like, fell on deaf ears, like nobody from communities outside the African-American community even gave a damn about the article. You understand what I'm saying? Why? Because I was not an Arab. 
it wasn't written, you know, from people from their community. So that's the only time it really matters, you know? And that was one of the things that kind of really started making me realize that there's this divide in our community, that there's this divide in our community, that when something happens with the adult community or the Daisy community, if it comes from their scholars, it comes from their people, it's just held in high esteem and, oh, we want to thank Dr. Shake so-and-so for, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then, you know, we try to show, you know, our solidarity, you know, we try to show that, you know, as it's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> and I was kind of like my first kind of seeing like, wow, like, not that I was looking for anything, obviously I'm not looking for it, but it's just that, you know, when people put out posts and, you know, it's just kind of, you know, welcomed by certain communities. And then when other people does it, do it, it's just like, it's, you know, it falls on deaf ears, man. But the Prophet said that the Muslim community is like one body. It's like one body. When one part aches, the other part stays up with sleep nights, sleepless nights, as well as, you know, fever, you know, because we're all affected. We're all affected. The murder of those three Muslims, although they were not African-Americans, they're still Muslims. And it, and it hurts. It hurts to hear that. It hurts to see that. You know. And uh, so she goes in with Aisha. She sits with her and she cries. And Aisha doesn't even know who this woman is, but the woman just wanted to let Aisha know that, you know, I'm here for you, I'm here with you. And she said that the Prophet ﷺ, here's the kicker. I don't know if I have enough time to do this. So why don't we wait until tomorrow? This conversation between the Prophet ﷺ and Aisha is going to get very heavy. The Prophet ﷺ walks into the house and sits down with Aisha. And this is the first time that he actually sat with Aisha and the conversation doesn't go nearly as well as we think it's going to go. We're gonna stop here. SubhanAllah man. This conversation between the Prophet and Aisha literally gonna bring you to tears. It's gonna bring you to tears. Because this is the first time he's actually having a conversation with Aisha since this whole ordeal. Aisha says that the Prophet ﷺ entered upon me and he had not sat with me, sat down with me since the beginning of this, of this issue. And the conversation that they have, subhanAllah, this is a husband-wife moment. <laughs> this is a husband wife moment right can you imagine no i'm not gonna do it tomorrow inshallah i'll see you guys tomorrow so we'll stop here and you guys have been great i pray that you know your days of the hijjah is going by you know well you guys are fasting as much as you can fast you're giving charity, sadaqah, as much as you can. Um, my uh, my PayPal account for Mardia community at gmail.com is still open. If you guys would like to donate, you guys would like to give charity, if you're ever looking for a place that you want to donate, um, inshallah ta'ala, we do give that money away to people that we know that are in need, families that are in need. So uh, if you 
coming up on uh, the day of Arafah, which is going to be Thursday, we should fast. The Prophet ﷺ said, whoever fasts the day of Arafah, they will, they will be forgiving. They will be forgiven for two years worth of sins, the year before and the, the coming year. All right. They'll be forgiven for two years worth of sin just for fasting for one day. And that is the day of Arafah, which will be Thursday. If you can fast as much as you can during these days, then please do so. And if you can't fast, you can give charity, you can do something good, you can feed some poor people, whatever the case may be. Do some form of good that you possibly can. All right. Send somebody an email that you haven't spoken to for in a while and send some, you know, good words their way. You know, hey, I haven't spoken to you in a while. I never told you I loved you. May Allah bless you. Send good words their way. The Prophet Sallallahu said one of the best deeds that you can do it's called a surur ala akhik is to bring happiness to the heart of your brother, your sister in Islam. That's a good deed. That's a good deed. You can send somebody an email that you haven't spoken to in a while. Text message, hey, I know I haven't heard from you in a while. I just want to let you know I love you. I think about you all the time. I know we don't speak all the time, but hey, I just wanted to send some love your way. You understand? Sending love doesn't, you know, doesn't cost a thing. It doesn't cost a thing. The the email, the it's called Maradia Community at Gmail. Maradia community at Gmail. That's the email that I use for, you know, like support email that I use for fundraisers, collecting money, you know, helping massage it out, helping other communities out, helping people out. Uh, the email is pinned there, inshallah. Maradia community. I didn't want to turn this into a fundraiser, but Maradia community at gmail.com. All right. So if you want to send sadaqah, you want to give sadaqah, whatever the case may be, I know many people massage it in your area may, may not be open and you're used to giving sadaqah to different massage or whatever, or your local masjid, you can always leave it there into that. That's a PayPal account. Yes. And uh, we'll distribute that and we'll make sure that there are families that, that get it, that, you know, need it especially with the E coming up, Maradia community at gmail.com. Yep. You, when you deposit it, just say it's sadaqah. Just say it's for sadaqah. I don't use that account for anything else other than sadaqah. So when you deposit it, you can just say it's for charity. Jazakumullah khayyam. All right. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala bless you all. I'll see you guys tomorrow. جزاكم الله خيرا وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا واخر دعوانا عن الحمد لله رب العالمين والسلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته